702 Masterclass And our masterclass on surrogacy today We're speaking to Robin Friedman Specialist in surrogacy and fertility law Robin, welcome to the show Thank you so much for joining us Hi Robin Hi Robin Hi, can you hear me? Now I can hear you Welcome to the show Thank you so much for joining us Thank you for having me. So, Robin, um, just in terms of what surrogacy is, can you just paint a picture for us? Yeah, sure. Just in very simple terms, um, surrogacy is a situation where you require another person, the surrogate mother, to actually carry the baby for either a single dad, for a heterosexual couple, or for gay parents, where parents are unable to carry the pregnancy themselves. They then procure the assistance of a third person, the surrogate mother. Okay, so just in terms of, um, and, and I think you've painted it quite clearly, especially mentioning that it's a heterosexual or a homosexual uh, a, a couple where they need the help of the carrying. So it's not necessarily needing the help with, with the eggs or, or anything like that, but just the help of the, the womb. That's correct, really. So how we normally do things in practice is that we will, as a matter of course, I will never use a surrogate mother's own eggs, um, Mm. as well as allowing her to carry the pregnancy, unless it's a very, very close family relative like the intended mother's sister, for example. So in, in the case where the intended mother can't produce her own eggs or where you've got a gay male couple and they obviously can't produce eggs, we'll then resort to um, using an anonymous egg donor or possibly an egg donor that they may know. Um, And if there is somebody that they may know who wants to donate their eggs to them, then there are other legal requirements that apply to that situation. And it is also quite complicated. So while, while we are on the issue of the surrogate and her eggs, can you maybe explain to us, and I, I've, I've, uh, it's been shared with me before, why it is that it is discouraged, especially when the surrogate is a stranger, that it's also her eggs. Um, I'm assuming part of the reason is, is also the fact that now it becomes a gray area that she could challenge that that is her child. You're right. It's a much more complicated situation. So in terms of our law, the difference between um, the situation where we use the surrogate's own eggs and where we using where a surrogate is carrying the parents' own genetic material or possibly an egg donor with one of the parents' um, genetic material, um, the difference comes into play in our law because our law says that where a surrogate mother, in the situation where we are talking about a traditional surrogacy where she's using her own eggs, carries the baby, she has a legal right to notify the court that she wishes to keep the baby. Mm. And she put a 60-day cooling-off period after the birth of the baby, during which time she may then elect to, to keep the baby and claim full parental rights to the child. Mm. So that's mm. very precarious for parents who are desperate to have a child. And there's absolutely no need for this to put parents at further risk. And you can imagine you've got a heterosexual couple who've possibly had many, many years of infertility, and now they're depending on a surrogate to carry a child, and then 
the risk may be that she may claim claim the baby from them at the end of the day. Yes, yes. Okay, so share with us how it works because, you know, many of us are exposed to international media, the British, uh, Americans, and we get to, you know, possibly watch movies where there's some drama with the surrogate. But how does it actually work in South Africa? I think it's one of the, I don't want to say secretive, but it's, an, it's a space that not many people speak openly about. I think it's becoming more and more common. Um, you'll find that, you know, when I started practicing about 20 years ago in surrogacy law, I had almost, well, there were no black couples doing surrogacy because mm. of all the cultural taboos. There were no Muslim couples doing surrogacy because of all the religious taboos. And now we find that it's across the board. We're doing surrogacies across all races because people are starting to talk about it and it's becoming, it's becoming a real need for, for many more couples. Yes, and I mean, you mentioning culture, um, it's just me thinking about the fact that then surrogacy is not that foreign a concept. Maybe how it's done is foreign a concept, but when you think about culturally um, in some black or African cultures, it was not abnormal if a woman could not carry or have a child that her sister would step in her place and do it for the couple. Absolutely true. And I mean, it extends as far back as the Bible days. Yes, yes, yes. Okay, so now then, help us understand what the laws are. If you are a couple and you actually realize that there are some serious fertility challenges and you've explored all of the options available to you, and now you say, actually, we still want our own DNA. The doctor has said my eggs are fine. My husband's sperm is fine. We want to go and find somebody to carry you. What is the first thing that that person needs to go and do? Okay, so the first step in the process is to consult with an expert because, as you said earlier, many of us are exposed to all these international surrogacy dramas and there's a lot of nonsense that's out there on the internet. So it's important to consult with an expert um, to sit down with you, have a consultation and explain all the steps in detail with you, the pros and cons of surrogacy, and then to go into the legal aspects of surrogacy. So for your listeners, they could, for example, um, connect onto my website, Robert Surrogacy Law, possibly make an appointment and ask questions on the website itself. And that's a place to start to take advice and support from a real expert on the topic. So you, you touched on pros and cons before we get to the legal part of the conversation as to what does the law say. Can you share with us what some of the cons are that you share before jumping to the pros? Yes, yeah, sure. So what I normally tell all my clients is that you must understand that when you find a surrogate mother, um, once the surrogate mother actually understands the full extent of what she's actually giving up and sacrificing for the couple in need. She may then, after many medical procedures have been paid for, psychological evaluations have been paid for, she may then decide to pull out. And this is extremely disappointing for couples because mm. you've invested emotionally in the surrogate, you've invested financially. The mm. other con that can often happen is once surrogates meet, um, once parents meet a perfect surrogate and they're in love with her and they think that this is the ideal candidate, it can often happen that when she undergoes her medical evaluation, the fertility specialist may find something um, 
which will contraindicate her from from carrying a pregnancy for the parents. And that Mm. can also be very disappointing. Mm. One thing that people need to understand about surrogate mothers, unfortunately in our country they are not allowed to be um, paid for their assistance to volunteer their services as a surrogate mother. Sorry, can you just repeat that again? So surrogate mothers are not allowed to be paid in South Africa for their services. So we don't have the situation like they do in the USA where you could rent your womb for payment. It's disallowed. It's actually a criminal offense in South Africa. Wow. Mm. Because, of course, the the, the type of risk um, that one would be exposing in terms of that whole situation. Um, But even though they cannot rent their womb, they must be compensated for any hard costs that would uh, arise just from the, the pregnancy. Absolutely. All, all costs pertaining directly pertaining to the surrogacy process and the pregnancy will be for the parents' account. Mm. And these are what we call the out-of-pocket expenses in mm. our law. Mm. Which includes medical, maternity wear. Correct. Your vitamins, your pregnancy shakes. Also an important part of this um, process is her loss of earnings. If she takes two months off work or six to eight weeks after the birth of the baby, the parents are liable to compensate her for her loss of earnings. Or for example, if she gets put on bed rest and she's employed during the pregnancy for two to three months, then the parents are liable to then compensate or make good her loss of salary. Can you talk us through, um, I mean, we were sharing some of the cons. Can you talk us through what the process is? Because it actually is quite complicated in the sense that you're going to deal with the part one of explaining to the couple how the things work, where the pros and cons are, but there are various stages. So even as you've already shared, once you've found somebody who you feel like you've got the same vision and that surrogate mom is in full understanding and wants to gift you with this, because really it is a sacrifice for her to do that um, for you as a couple, is that along the way she may no longer be a candidate based on certain things. So what are those processes and steps that the couple would go through and maybe uh, take a start us at the part of where does one even look for a surrogate? Okay, so the best place to start, the first step in the process is to actually find the surrogate. And then the best place to start is to speak to as many people as you know, friends, family, work colleagues, your hairdresser, your beauty therapist, and tell them to spread the word for you. It's also difficult for some couples because not many couples are that open about their fertility situation. Yes. Obviously, if you're a gay male couple, it's a lot easier for you to talk about the fact that you're in need of a surrogate mother. And mm. that's all very exciting. But for, um, for, for couples like your black heterosexual couples where there are many societal taboos surrounding surrogacy, you may be very closed up about it. Or if you're a Muslim person for that matter or a religious Jewish couple, you may be more private about that. So in that instance, you could approach um, the Surrogacy Advisory Group. The Surrogacy Advisory Group is a non-profit organization. You can go onto their website. And this organization attempts to introduce surrogate mothers to intended parents as a free service. So that's a good place to start. Um, Alternatively, um, you could come to somebody like me. I blog about surrogacy. We try and speak about it as much as possible. And I often get referrals via word of mouth, via some of the fertility clinics. And that's how we we match our parents free of charge. Is it legal to to have a surrogacy agency um, um, in this country, as in an agency that specifically connects 
um, those looking for a surrogate with, with surrogates that have already, for example, um, gone through the medicals and all of those things. So it's almost like opening a file at the sperm donor bank. Really, there's nothing wrong with an agency assisting parents in finding surrogate mothers. But the golden rule is that an agency cannot charge an introductory fee to parents. So you cannot pay an agency any fees whatsoever in terms of our law for introducing you to that surrogate mother. Yes. And if you look at the website of the Surrogacy Advisory Group, for example, um, that's a legitimate website because they do not even ask patrons of that website to contribute towards the, the costs of running or keeping the, yes. the website going. So you've got to be very careful of agencies, and the law is very, very strict about that. Once again, um, a criminal offence. You yes. can't pay anyone an introductory fee. Yes, yes. Okay, so now once they have found uh, a potential candidate, what are the questions that need to be asked of that person in the, whether it be a first date or an interview? Yeah, I think that's quite a nice way of putting it. I wait for my clients, but meeting clients, <laughs> it's like meeting a new friend yes. for the first time <laughs> or going on your first new date. So during that meeting, it's important to ask your surrogate mother absolutely everything. There's nothing that you can't ask her because this is such a personal journey. Um, I even encourage my clients to ask the surrogate mother about her sexual lifestyle. If she's a single woman, obviously if she's married, you've got to be sensitive to the fact that she's married. But um, you must understand there's the issues like HIV, sexually transmittable diseases, things that can be transferred to to the parent's baby, and we need to guard against those um, possibilities. Yes, yes. Ask the surrogate mother if she'd be prepared to carry a twin pregnancy. And in that case, um, more than one embryo would be transferred into her uterus. Another very important question to ask her is, how does she feel about terminating pregnancy if, God forbid, there's something very Mm. wrong with the baby? If there's a serious congenital abnormality that will affect the quality of life of the child after birth, they can't be rectified medically or surgically while in utero or after birth. How does she feel about that? Because many parents don't want to bring a baby into this world where the baby would be seriously compromised. Mm-hmm. And I think that's a massive, massive one that many people probably don't think about because in your um, whatever challenges that you are facing, the surrogate is coming as the solution. So the idea that there may be a medical reason to terminate may not even cross your mind to bring it up in conversation because that must be very complicated if you did not discuss that and then you find that there's a massive medical issue and you cannot force the carrier, even though um, the child is yours, you can't force her to go through an abortion or a termination. That's absolutely correct. So before we introduce surrogates to our parents, we have to make sure that there's a meeting of the minds, a meeting on the moral or religious value system that each party carries in this process so that the the, the surrogate mother doesn't change her mind later on in the process and refuse to terminate if the child is seriously compromised. So on that point, our um, our law says that because it's a surrogate mother's own body, she has the ultimate say on, as to whether or not she will terminate the pregnancy because it, her, it is her body. Mm. So that needs to be discussed with the parents and the surrogate and debated right at the beginning, gets debated at my offices. And again, we'll talk about it just now, but there's a psychological evaluation that takes place. And I normally like the parents to sit with the surrogate together with the psychologist and debate the issue of, of termination together. It's such a vast topic. There's so many variables 
For example, mm. if the child has a cleft palate, how do the parents feel? How does the surrogate feel? If there's a Down syndrome baby, how do the parents mm. feel about Down's? And how, do the, how does the surrogate feel about, about a Down's baby? And then also, if there is some kind of procedure that can be, be performed on the baby during while in the womb, is that a, something that the surrogate can refuse? Well, that's an interesting question. I don't believe that it's actually never come up. So I don't believe that the surrogate mother can refuse such a procedure to take place, provided that it is not harmful to, to her body. She would have to give consent ultimately, but I think on a morally or an ethical basis, she can't, she shouldn't be allowed to refuse. Okay. And I mean, it's interesting because, you know, some of these cases can end up in court if the parents are saying, you know, if this is our last chance, please, you know, do this procedure. But she possibly could argue that it is putting her life at risk going in for a procedure absolutely in that case the court will always choose her life i believe mm. her life is paramount throughout this whole process mm. we need to make sure and that also goes uh, um, goes for the birthing process if for example your surrogate mother absolutely wants to have a natural delivery but at the end of the day if she runs into some kind of medical distress and a, a cesarean needs to be performed, she has to undergo the cesarean section in life-saving circumstances for to save her own life and to save the baby's life. Yes, and I, just to reiterate um, that you are saying that in the operating room, her life is the one that is paramount, as in the protocol that the Guinean, whoever else is in the room, is that if they have to choose, they will choose the carrier's life. And it feels so odd saying carrier because she's not the mother. Well, I like the word carrier because I, I you know, I have a difficulty with the use of the word surrogate mother as it is as it is prescribed in our Children's Act because she's not the mother. Yes, and I'm not quite sure why the legislators chose that name. Um, I always prefer to use the name carrier. She is the carrier. Yes, yes, yes. Okay, so just in terms of, uh, you know, once they have come to an agreement that they're on the same page, that if termination is required, and we're talking specifically around the very difficult, difficult part of the conversation, do they ever have to touch on things like um, rituals, for example? Like if if there there is a religion or a culture that believes that while the baby's in the womb there's some ritual that needs to be done according to the parents' culture, I'm assuming that would also need to come up in conversation. There could be um, there could be a discussion had around religious beliefs or religious rituals. Um, I haven't come into contact with too many ritual experiences. What I have come into contact with is um, many of my, my Hindu couples don't want the surrogate mother to eat beef because it's a sac- the cow is a sacred animal. And we ask the surrogate mother whether she's prepared to comply with those um, yes. requirements. Yes. And then you have the Muslim couples where um, they would prefer the surrogate mom to eat halal meat. And your Jewish couples where they would prefer the surrogate mother not to eat pork or, mm. or shellfish. So that's always debated and it is a request. But um, I haven't really had a couple who have said, look, at the end of the day, if you're absolutely dead against eating halal meat, you know, we're not going to, to take the baby. But um, 
we do discuss everything to make it as comfortable as possible for everybody involved. Oh, perfect. And I think the way that you're explaining, I also never thought about the pork and the beef and halal and kosher, uh, that those c- uh, considerations are actually quite relevant because at the end of the day, let's assume it is the DNA of both of the parents. It is their child. And even actually, if it isn't their DNA, it still is their child. It's still their child in law. But I'm just going to qualify that. You just, you just touched on something, something now. You said that even if it isn't their DNA. So our law says that we have to use the genetic material of preferably of at least one of the intended parents in a heterosexual situation and in a gay situation, it's either of the, the male parties. Mm. It has to be used. It's always one party's genetic material. And if you're a single dad or a single mom, it's got to be your egg or your sperm. So we're not allowed to use what we call double donor gametes in our law with the surrogate mother. You can't use a donor egg and a donor sperm, create embryos from that, and transfer that into the uterus of your thyroid mother. So, so it's got to be a genetic link. Yes. So, uh, um, um, you obviously having you know the understanding with the law. I, being a layman, and we'll come back to this um, as soon as we come back from the from the news. Think that sounds excre- extremely discriminatory because what if it happens that both parents don't have. Um, the DNA that they're able to give, does that mean that they are excluded from the surrogacy process? What does that look like? So we'll pick up on this conversation. And of course, you can give us a call and ask any of the questions that you have around surrogacy. 011 in the WhatsApp line 072702 We're speaking to Robin Friedman, specialist in surrogacy and fertility law. It- 702. Masterclass. Our masterclass today is on surrogacy. Give us a call, 011-8830702. Send us a WhatsApp, uh, your voice notes, your questions, 072-702-1702. We are in conversation with Robin Friedman, specialist in surrogacy and fertility law. So, Robin, before we went to the news, you were sharing with me that actually the DNA of the child that has been carried by the carrier or the surrogate mother, part of that DNA needs to belong to at least one of the parents. And for myself as a lay man, I feel like that is discriminatory because if there is a scenario where myself and my partner, let's call it me and my husband, both have fertility issues. We cannot get eggs because maybe I'm over 40. He cannot get sperm for whatever reason. But this is an option that we would like. It, does that mean our only choice is adoption? Really, that's absolutely correct. Unfortunately, um, this specific section of the Children's Act, Section 294, was challenged a few years ago. Um, I was involved in that case. In the con- We went all the way to the Constitutional Court to try and get this ruled out on the basis that it it was prejudicial, prejudicial to a class of persons, to these class of persons who were both husband, where both husband and wife were infertile. And in that case, um, there was a, a case brought by a single woman who didn't have a life partner and she was unable to use her own eggs. And unfortunately, the Constitutional Court dismissed the application and they wanted that section to remain in place on the basis that it was essential 
to the health and welfare of a child to maintain a genetic link to either of the parents. So and can... very well for us to say, you know, well, if you're using donor egg and donor sperm, you may, may as well go out and adopt a child. But I can tell you now that it is extremely difficult to adopt a child, particularly if you are looking for a white, Indian, Chinese baby in this country. It's virtually impossible to find babies of those specific races. And to get babies as young as possible, which would be the ideal scenario um, in, in, um, for, for some parents who want to bond with a newborn. Um, not, in, not in any way, you know, to speak down to the many children that are waiting to be adopted. And of course, we hope that they find homes, but there are many parents who want to bond with a newborn. So then my question is, does that case that was dismissed, did it cover, did it cover DNA connection in the sense that if me and my, or my husband and I, we both cannot give eggs or sperms, but maybe my sister can donate. Does that qualify as a DNA connection? Well, the court said that it didn't qualify as a DNA connection at all. So it's still, the law stands as it is. We still need to show that there's a genetic link requirement. Um, we hope that this law will someday change. Um, there should actually be a discretion given to the judges to look at each and every case on a case-by-case um, basis and decide in each and every unique set of circumstances where there is a place for this sort of double donor um, gamut donation um, situation within, whereby we use whereby we use the assistance of a surrogate mother. I'm so disappointed with what you just said to me. And interestingly enough, we'll be um, having an episode in our series on the South African court system on the Constitutional Court. And I'm so disappointed that a case of this nature was dismissed. But at the same time, things like fertility, um, you know, when a woman wants fertility treatment, are considered by medical aids. What is the term called again? Elective. Yeah, elective. Elective. So, you're, I'm shocked, but I'm also not surprised. Yeah, really. What's interesting about that scenario, though, is that in a case where a woman cannot provide her own eggs and where her husband is infertile, provided that she carries the pregnancy herself, she is then allowed to use donor egg and donor sperm and have embryos created as long as they are transferred into her uterus. So in my mind, that makes no difference whether you're using a third party to carry your baby or whether you're carrying the baby yourself. I don't know what the logic is with that, but that was exactly our argument. How could you allow it in a situation where the woman carries her own baby, but when we have to, when our fertility problem is so much more severe and we have to resort to the use of the assistance of a surrogate mother, how can you disallow it in that instance? In the words of one of the listeners we had uh, on Monday, they said, Stop trying to make sense of things that don't make sense. And this to me does not make sense, but be that as it may. All right. So you've covered the scenarios of what the law um, allows in, in, in terms of DNA match with the child. So currently, as it stands, at least one of the parents needs to have a DNA match with the child direct, not via family. And the justification being that, you know, I'm assuming that you won't abandon the surrogate with this pregnancy because actually you're not connected to the child genetically. Well, that could be one argument, but there are many other arguments. Um, you know, the Constitutional Court believed, how it was of their view, that 
you're needed to have a genetic, um, that the genetic link is important for the child's own welfare and mental health and general development to have a genetic link to a particular parent. But, I mean, that flies in the face of the millions of adopted children out there and adoptive parents who have children. I'm a mom of two adopted girls. And, I mean, they're just as, my, as much my children as, as, as if they were genetically related to me. It makes no difference. It's a very poor argument, unfortunately. Yes, yes. Now, before I jump into asking you about your personal experience with surrogacy, uh, Mbai on Twitter says, what happens in the case where the surrogate that used her own eggs chooses to keep the baby and the father is the is the mother's husband as in the initially intended mother's husband can the surrogate claim maintenance i'm assuming the answer is yes well that's a very very difficult topic um it hasn't actually been decided yet to my knowledge we haven't had a case like this in south africa yet i'm not to say that it is going to come up at some point in time so that maintenance question hasn't been decided. But if we read the Children's Act, in a situation like that, if the surrogate mother is married, then her husband, the surrogate mother's own husband, will be, for all intents and purposes, the father of the child and assumes full parental rights and responsibility. Oh, yes, because, because she's deciding that actually yes. I no longer want to give up parental rights. Technically, I'm the parent. But then yes, what is that? If she's married, yeah. If she's, if she's a single person, then we could argue that the intended mother or the commissioning father um, could then be, uh, he could then take the place of, of the father of the child. But it's a very, very complicated situation. And I mean, there would have to be a hearing, that, um, t- a court hearing which would take place based upon what would be the best interests of the child in this whole scenario. It can become very, very messy. And I mean, for this reason, I stay away from traditional surrogacy agreements. I'm even nervous when we have, you know, two, one sister donating her eggs to the other because you don't know how relationships, family relationships can deteriorate in the future. Mm. Yeah, or even friends um, as well. All right, let's, let's take a quick break. And when we come back, we're going to take all of your questions that have come through on the WhatsApp line um, and give us a call, O double one double eight three zero seven zero two, And then we'll also chat to Robin about her own personal experience with surrogacy. Masterclass. It is just going 10 minutes uh, to 3 o'clock and our masterclass today is on surrogacy. We're speaking to Robin Friedman, who is a specialist in surrogacy and fertility law. So, Robin, what was your story with surrogacy? Um, apologies, I, apologies, Robin. Just start again. I thought I had clicked for you, but I didn't. Please, can you start again? We didn't hear the beginning. Sure. So my personal story began over 20 years ago with surrogacy. Um, I was struggling um, with many, many years of infertility and um, we just weren't coming right. And eventually, I just very shortly, I was diagnosed with a serious um, autoimmune disease, which, um, and I was told not to carry a pregnancy because it could be potentially life-threatening for me and the child. And um, so more than 20 years ago, I started to do my own research on surrogacy. There wasn't anything out there. I mean, I'd known of one other woman who had done surrogacy in the past. The fertility clinic that I was at at the time um, had never done a surrogacy, to the best of my knowledge. So I kind of, I was the guinea pig, and I I just doubted, I did at the time what I thought was the most logical thing to do. I spoke to everybody that I knew. I told them I was in need of a surrogate mother. 
And um, to cut a very long story short, um, it was only um, after I had gone through my, I had two failed um, surrogacy processes with two separate surrogate mothers, it didn't work, and then I moved on to another fertility clinic and I found a third surrogate mother and eventually um, we had a a surrogate baby. Um, My son is now 13 years old um, and... Prior to that, with all the failures, I'd kind of given up on surrogacy, um, and we adopted two girls um, at birth. So that was quite lucky to actually find children to adopt, um, but I was still hell-bent on on having my surrogate child, and I always wanted to have a little boy. So I was very blessed to find my third surrogate mother some years later, but it was a long battle with infertility. What would you say one of the most difficult parts of of the surrogacy process um, was and I, I I imagine you know knowing that your 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 surrogate is carrying your child and you're not with them twenty four seven. I feel like the A type personality I am. I would lose sleep and probably get a get a restraining order against me after harassing her for like what did you eat today? What did you drink? How much did you drink? <laughs> Listen, I have so many parents like that. Um, the bottom line is that I think it. You know, you just have to relinquish control. And, I mean, I'm also an A-time personality. It was a very hard lesson for me to learn. And what I actually found was when I actually met my third surrogate mother, she was the perfect match for me. It was then that I could actually breathe and relax completely because I just had an innate, strong gut feeling that this was the perfect surrogate for me and that I could just relinquish control to her. And I was also so grateful um, to not have to put my own body at risk and, and the baby at risk and be able to hand over this process to somebody as capable as her in that area. You know, all our, A-type, um, all our women out there and men with these A-type personalities, you know, we, we can only do so much right, but for many of us, you know, carrying our own pregnancy is just not something we are able to do. But you can't be controlling as a parent. A surrogate has her own life. She has her own partner. She has her own family, and you need to trust her. Um, if you have a very bad gut feel at the first meeting with your surrogate, it's like a blind date. If, you, if, you're, if, you're, if your gut is shouting, get out of here as quickly as possible. It's the same thing with surrogacy. You cannot carry on. Yes, especially if that person has to be in your lives uh, for that period of time. And then obviously things like um, appointments and checkups. Um, I, I mean, I was speaking to a doula friend of mine who... Um, has currently got a, a surrogate and when when um, she actually allows the father to come in he sits and waits in the car um, but she allows once the doctor has checked her the father to come in what is what is uh, what is it that you advise should be the case to keep things you know to keep boundaries in place between the parents and the surrogate when it comes to things like appointments and checkups and scans Well, I encourage all of my parents to be very much invested in this process, to attend as many of the scans as possible. And you honestly can't expect your surrogate to go and have a pregnancy scan on her own. If both parents can't be there, at least one of the parents needs to be there. And if the parents are out of the country, delegate a family member to go with her and give her support. 
she can't be left alone. This is not her baby. And um, I encourage both parents, the husband and the wife, or if they're gay men, both of them to be in the room when she's having a scan. And normally what happens, they can sit in the doctor's room and he'll make her decent um, cover up where necessary. And then they can stand behind her head and look at the screen and watch the, and, and, and listen to the heartbeat and see, listen to the doctor's assessment of their scan. It's so important that they're part of this journey because that's the reason the surrogate's doing, doing this. She's doing it to, to gift the parents with the child. And then also in the birthing room, it's also encouraged that both parents are in the birthing room. Things changed radically over COVID. It was a very difficult time where parents were not allowed in the birthing room with her. But generally, we do encourage both the husband and the wife to be present. Once again, once she's made decent, and um, they should be there to cut the umbilical cord, to hold her hand, to support her, and guide her through the birthing process. So what happens once the baby's born, the baby's with the family, what happens to that relationship with the surrogate? So you must remember that the highlight of this whole journey is, is the minute the surrogate sees the baby in the arms of the parents in the birthing room. Mm. That is just the absolute climax of this whole story. And after that, I found that a lot of our surrogates um, can, can, you know, the, the hormones start setting in and they can be a bit of a downer that happens and that's why it's very important for the parents to take care of the surrogate mother in the hospital very important because they're going to be overwhelmed with their new baby but at the same time the surrogate feels a sense of loss towards the parents surrogates don't bond to the babies it's that's that's a misnomer they bond to the parents mm. the parents have become their good friends their family their extended family and they, they start to mourn that loss mm. and once the baby is born every situation is different really there's, there are no hard and fast rules. I mean, I'm still in, in close contact with my own surrogate mother. She's attending my son's 13th birthday coming up next month. So it doesn't mean you have to take her off contact forever. It depends on the relationship. If you have a good relationship, you can see each other socially. If you trust each other, continue with that relationship. And the better the relationship is, um, what I'm seeing in practice all the time is the more more often than not, the surrogate mother will come back to the same parents and offer her assistance and say, let's do a sibling journey. And that's amazing. Mm-hmm. Just in terms of, an, <clears throat> excuse me, there's so many questions I haven't had a chance to get to, but um, is there a scenario, because this, this becomes a contract, right? An agreement is drawn up between the, the, the parents and the surrogate. What if, for whatever reason, the surrogate, for non-medical reasons, wants to terminate the pregnancy? Okay, so she actually is entitled to terminate the pregnancy. Wow. Yeah, but there's, there's certain conditions in place with that. She can't just willy-nilly go on her own accord and terminate the pregnancy. In terms of the choice of termination of Pregnancy Act, she's entitled to terminate the pregnancy up until 12 weeks, if for various reasons, financial reasons, if she believes that her mental health is going to go down, there can be various reasons that she can motivate to terminate the pregnancy. But the process is, in terms of the Children's Act, because it's a surrogacy scenario, is that she has to notify the parents in writing of her intention to terminate the pregnancy. And then what we would do is then have a consultation all together with the parents, her and um, the gynecologist or a psychologist, um, and just discuss and debate and see if there are any ways or means we could assist her through this pregnancy. So there's got to be that consultation which takes place. 
And after this, if you can't convince the surrogate mother to not to terminate, then she is entitled to terminate the pregnancy. I have run out of time and there's so many questions that we still had to discuss. But let's see if we can consider having a part two to this discussion and so many of your questions that we didn't get to. Robin Friedman, specialist in surrogacy and fertility law on today's masterclass on surrogacy.